0: Hey, friends, you are in for a treat today on The Hillary Show. We've got Dr. Joan Chapman, who is going to talk to us all about why we need to restructure and rethink the way that we do health care in the United States. She's been boots on the ground, not only in service to the country as a military member, but also as a physician on the civilian side. Throughout the pandemic, she was giving shots in arms and helping coordinate that whole effort. She is passionate about immunizations and understanding contagious diseases and so many other things that kind of as a lay person, I don't completely grasp, but she is such a treat, such a gift to the world. And I know that you're going to get so much out of this and really rethink the way that you treat not only your body, but your, the idea of your relationship with your physician. If you don't have one, maybe after this one, you'll think about why you need one. Enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of the Hillary show. I'm so excited to have Joni Chapman, my very dear friend, who's also a visionary medical doctor. She's a yoga lover. She's a mom. She's a military member and a military spouse. So she's doubling up there on all of the things. And I was so fortunate to have met Joni way back in the day, back when neither of us had any little initials after our names, I think. Maybe you had fancy things. I I didn't have anything fancy after my name Um, when we were living in Japan. And Joni was making transatlantic booty calls to her husband who was stationed there when I was stationed there with my husband. And today, Joni's purpose, like her big hairy audacious goal. The thing that she's going to talk to us today about is re-empowering people to own their healthcare information. Joni, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome, Joni. Nice to be
1: here. I just can't believe that we're here today. This is just, we've come so far.
0: Yes, we've come so far from riding our bicycles across Japan um, in order to go have beers and ice cream and whatever shenanigans we got into at the Shimoda Mall in Japan. So tell me how you guys, tell, tell our uh, all the listeners how you guys connected in the
2: first place and where you connected and what that was like.
0: Well, I think Joni's experience will probably be different than my recollection. Joni, you go first.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, I remember meeting Hillary You know, there was a lot of dinners in the Cabbage Patch, which was the place that we lived, uh, Raven lived, and then I would go and visit for the said booty calls. (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah, so we would have dinners together. And I I remember coming over to her house for dinner, you know, and seeing this beautiful little home she'd made and, you know, all the, um, just the effort to really kind of create a community and a life together you know, despite being out of the country. And that was like my first memory, glimpse of of Hillary. And then um, I I distinctly remember kind of a a tea house um, kind of get together where we like went to this little Japanese tea house and just had a heart-to-heart talk at that point. And I really got to kind of know Hillary then and discover who she was and what a wonderful, beautiful person she was and um, how young we were.
0: Just, like oh, my gosh! We were so everything, yeah, and we thought we were fat and old. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the laughter we have now we're like, the tears rolling down our cheeks. Um, Joni, when did you decide in your life that you wanted to be a doctor?
1: You know that that was a decision I made in the back of my mind a long time ago. You know, when I was pretty young, I have an uncle who's a surgeon, and um i I knew that what he did was what I wanted to do just kind of I knew that how he interacted in the world is how I wanted to be um, and how he was able to help everyone in the family and that just kind of sat in the back of my mind for a long time but then you know i got i I went down several routes because I was good at math and science and I wanted my dad's an engineer and, and of course that was like well, you know be an engineer or don't go to school. (laughs) There's no other school than engineering school is my dad's like mantra, I think. Um, And so I went to engineering school and I did it with a bio emphasis. So I did biomedical engineering at UC Berkeley. And then I also worked with physicians in that capacity and research capacity and also more like, Mostly the research side I saw what physicians did on on that side and then I saw less of the clinical and then I just realized even from the research side I wanted to be a doctor. So that's basically the long short short story of why I want to be how I became a doctor and how I wanted to be a doctor.
0: Thank you. yeah. Awesome. so then let's like push the fast forward tape where like you know I'm thinking like an age track tape we fast forward really fast to present day. And you are a doctor and what are the things that are in between that you think, you know, people see you, they meet you, they, they learn that you're a doctor and I'm sure they have a certain impression of you. What are the things that were in between that people probably don't know about of thinking, I want to be a doctor. I'm going to go be an engineer. I'm going to learn about all this stuff. And then now I'm going to go to medical school. I'm going to do residency. We watch all these doctor shows on TV, but what is actually, what's it actually like between I want to do this and I am doing this? So I think
1: the part that people don't really understand or realize as somebody goes through that process is that. We are still struggling with everything through normal life as we go through those transition periods, right? I mean, we we have a goal. I said, I want to go to medical school." I, of course, had many trials and tribulations getting in. And that was hum basically humbling experience, but also a learning and growing experience, you know, that I think we we have to prove to ourselves we really want something, right? So, I really wanted to go to medical school and I didn't know how to do that because after going through UC Berkeley undergraduate engineering, I had a really bad GPA. Let's be honest. Um, My GPA was 3.0, which was not the 4.0 or 4.2 or whatever it is you need to get into medical school just by looking at your resume. So I had to be more than just that number. Um, in many different ways. And that, that was a growing experience too. I couldn't just eminence my credential myself into medical school and say, my papers look so great. So therefore they should accept me. You know, I had to do a lot of self-advocacy to get into medical school. So I did everything I could to show an admissions committee that, you know, I'm really passionate about this. So I did lots of research and I, I actually kind of went more and thought maybe I will actually, I got so passionate about the research that I actually might just do the research, but I did lots of research at UCSF um, after graduating from my engineering degree with my engineering degree um, and did lots of research at UCSF for, for, for three for four years and i went back and forth between brazil and the united states and i built up a resume with lots of publications in immunology and virology research first at the institution um, called the gladstone institute of virology and immunology under the lab of dr doug nixon then i also um it, we progressed and became a new institution called the division of experimental medicine where we were able to work with hiv patients and publish their results as of you know them changing regimen, looking at their viral sequences, looking at how the T cells interacted with their viruses. Um, and that was a really fascinating part of my career that I would never trade for anything had I gotten straight into medical school right out of undergraduate degree. So I got to work with Steve Deeks, who is number one, in my mind, in terms of HIV, virology research um, at UCSF, and got to sit in a room with these amazing, wonderful researchers, Doug Nixon, Mike McCune, um, Dr. Napolitano. I mean, it was was just fantastic group of people uh, who I was able to be mentored by for those four years. So that's kind of the the unconventional yet somewhat conventional way people
0: get into medical school sometimes. Isn't it incredible how the biggest, you know, I'm air quoting this setback where you're like, look at my GPA, this is an unchangeable thing now because it's on my permanent record. And then because of this, what was perceived then as a setback is now the thing that you look back and you're like, I wouldn't have changed that for the world.
1: Right. Yeah, it's I mean incredible. It, I I got to go to Brazil, I got to I got to go to Banff and Whistler for conferences, I got to you know ride chairlifts with famous immunologists who are doing HIV
0: monkey research, you know, uh-huh. like <laughs> how did that experience going, you know, where you were in that era and then we fast forward to you know 2020 and you became one of the leading physicians to help immunize most of the United States, definitely the Southwest. How, how did that experience impact that? And tell me a little bit about what it was like to round everybody up. I know you were out here in Phoenix and getting uh, like the organization and the information, um, shared, I was going to say spread, but we want to share the information, not spread anything when it was a pandemic. How are those two things related?
1: Well, um, you know, when I was in, in medical school, I, I was pretty broke and then in residency also very broke. And um, Raven said, well, you know, the military has this great deal where you can accept, you know, 1000 or $2,000 a month extra and, you know, serve, take money for a year and then you give them two years for every one year of service. And um, that was the situation that I was in when I first signed up that that was the recruiter had had advertised to me and so I said well that's great because I need a new car because my car at that point had been stolen three times out of my front yard (laughs) and so I I I said I need a new car because I can't keep missing any things from residency like this would be at five in the morning I wouldn't have a car so I said I need a car that won't get stolen so I signed up and I said you know I want to serve my country um, and I think this will be a great opportunity for me to learn about the military and grow in that way as well, and so I signed up, and um, that that after I graduated from residency, then I became a, a captain when I first graduated, and then uh, became a major as a result of just years of service, and I started to be volunteered for things basically is what ends up happening is they see you know you're a physician so you're automatically given this credential like you are going to be the leader you know you're a physician now so take charge go go run and um you know first of it first of all it started as a volunteer situation with the uh army reserve national guard uh in phoenix over at papago and um i i volunteered with them to vaccinate en masse all over Arizona. And that was that was how that first experience came about. And then the second experience came about when I was handed the immunology program, um, basic not the immun immunizations program. Sorry, the immunizations program for all of the 944th MDS, which is um a big wing. 944th is uh, about 1,600 individuals. And then I was in charge of vaccinating that whole community, um,
0: trying to get that all squared away. So you started with different sections, it sounds like, of the military. But then from my understanding, you also helped vaccinate a lot of the civilian population, a lot of us folks.
1: Yeah. So uh, that was through the Army National Guard. Um the Army Reserve National Guard, uh, over in, uh, that's, so it was, it was a volunteer kind of joint, joint program. So Air Force and Army and Air Force Reserve, Army Reserve, we collaborated on that front and that's how we all became involved in the process, you know, of organizing, that and delivering that. I mean, mostly I was not responsible for the organizing of the delivery of the vaccines in that in that particular volunteer effort. That was me volunteering as a physician to go ahead and put shots in arms and go all over and travel with these really young army military reservists uh, driving around and staying at hotels and setting up shop in gyms and you know, uh, big stadiums and just, you know, running the show in terms of putting the shots in the arms. That's basically what that was for that, that period of time.
0: For that season. And even before that, you know, as a physician, uh, this is a, I was a patient during the pandemic, which was nuts, not of yours, but you know, out here because of various things. But as a physician, I think that we can't really, I don't think any of us can ever really appreciate what you had to go through and what our nurses went through and even janitors and other support staff. Um, what was it like? I mean, I know you were living in a section of your house because you were exposed to COVID all day, every day. This was when we didn't know what COVID was. We we thought that everyone was just going to drop like flies and, um, you know, many, many, many thousands of people did die. And, you were living kind of in a, in a glass cage in your home away from your husband and your kid. And what was that like?
1: Yeah, those are some of the more challenging periods for me just thinking about, you know, I mean, it was like, we just didn't know if I was going to be bringing stuff home from the hospital, you know, and that's always a scary situation for your family, but it also was just so important amazing that my husband and, and my son were so supportive of me. I mean, they would show up at my door and knock on my window and draw me pictures and bring me food. <laughs> so, oh, you know, I mean, it felt so, uh, I don't know, just amazing to know that I was so supported during all of that, um, but still feeling like that was such an important time for me to be a physician. I mean, that's what I trained for, you know. I mean, that's what I was. Thank what you. I always like I to be there I for everybody <laughs> during that time. You know, <laughs> that's like yeah. that's the time you don't want to shy away from the challenge.
2: Yeah, I think from my perspective, you know, Midwestern Kansas, um, I wasn't able to say voice the thank yous to our our military and our medical professionals that were on the front lines of COVID and stuff. So thank you for that time that you gave and, and the, the things that you sacrificed, the kid hugs, the husband kisses that were sacrificed during that time for everybody else too. Yeah.
0: Well, and the family planning, I mean, many people, um, had to put family planning on hold because they didn't know what it would be like if they were to be pregnant and then serving and uh, exposed to COVID every single day. So it's a, it's a huge sacrifice. I think it's just impossible to appreciate. Like it's impossible to comprehend. So we can only offer our appreciation. Yeah, Um, exactly. Looking, looking back, what do you think? Um, what do you think of where we're at right now with overall, you know, COVID is, this is November, 2022 is everywhere all over again. And like, we're just not talking about it. Nobody's talking about it. Mm -hmm. What does that do to someone, um, you know, who has given so much to try to spread information. So people feel confident and comfortable and have confidence in not just what the FDA is saying and what, um, you know, the white house is saying, but then knowing the research that you've spent your entire career working toward understanding and then for us just to not talk about it now, is that a good thing, bad thing? What does that do for you? Yeah. I mean, I think that as with every
1: tide of news stories, you know, this got, it was a long news story and now it's kind of met its run, you know, and, and we do still hear about these things going on in the news. I think our, hopefully what we've learned is that the information that we've taken from these last two years still is important to hold close in a different way maybe now than it was in the middle of the pandemic. But that knowledge, I think, translates. I mean, I still see people around, even in my area of Kern County, who do wear masks in public places. And and that just gives me kind of a little bit of hope where if you know you're not feeling well or if you know that you're around people who you know might be 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 spreading a viral illness particularly, then that's important for you to do all use all the knowledge that you have gained in the last two years and use that to protect yourself and your community really fundamentally. So I think that it's it's not the same, but I still I think I've emerged with some hope more than anything which i didn't know if i that i would have but i have emerged with hope because i think we've learned the hardest lessons we lost a million people in the united states and i think everyone was touched by that at some point and if you whether or not you knew somebody personally or one one once removed that that's the only lesson we can really learn and you know and and if we if we don't, it's really on us as individuals to, to make those choices with that information.
0: And that segues nicely into what your big goal is, which is to re-empower people to own their healthcare information. What does that mean?
1: Yeah. So my, my biggest problem, I think, with the healthcare system today is that people feel uninformed. They feel like they don't have enough time with their doctor. They feel like their needs are not met, you know, just on a personal level. Um, In many ways, I've had many discussions with patients over the years. And I think part of it is, you know, we have, we have all this health information out there that people have gone to multiple different doctors, they've gone to multiple different places, but do they know anything about their healthcare? I mean, do they know their labs? Do they know, uh, can they easily go somewhere and look at everything? And the reality is that they can't, and um, that it has to be pulled by their doctor and that their doctor holds the information. And then if they have a great relationship with their doctor, they can maybe discuss those things or get printouts and have those kinds of conversations about their healthcare. But the vast majority, and myself included, can't. I mean, I don't think that's, it's not an easy situation to navigate. And I think that right now there are legal institutions in place like HIPAA and those kinds of things that people throw around the word and they don't even understand what it means truly. And I I just think that it's important for us to use the institutions that are in place. Obviously, HIPAA compliance is very important, but I think that it's important for us to also understand individuals' needs for healthcare information. Um, and to be able to somehow work within the systems that we currently have to be able to give people better access to their information so that they can make good choices. They can develop relationships with their doctors and and other healthcare professionals and that they can actually stay healthy.
0: So I have, I want to put this into like real people terms. So I'm going to connect it to myself. So I make sure that I understand because the, the I can talk about law stuff, but we get into medicine and I feel like it's just another language. I I hear that it's all English, but I don't totally understand everything. (laughs) So it's easiest for me if I can sort of dumb this down to Hillary level. So thank you for indulging me. But I'm thinking about when I had bad kidney stones, you, you know, this story, but when I had bad kidney stones, then I, you know, came home. I still don't actually understand what happened. No one would really give me a straight answer, but next thing I knew, I was the size of a blueberries, what Sean described me as. He's like, you look like a blueberry. You're so swollen. I couldn't breathe. Um, I thought that I had COVID because I, you know, at the time, one of the symptoms of COVID was that you were unable to breathe, but really, I just, I guess had so much fluid in my body. Anyway, I was in the hospital for about 10 days and it was the closest to death I've ever experienced. And I don't even know if I was close to death, but I just felt like it. And now I'm just hoping I never have, I know there were more kidney stones in my body and I'm just hoping that I don't have to deal with them. I'm kind of like sticking my head in the sand because I don't have a primary care physician. I don't go see a doctor. I am very healthy. And I was taught that you only go to the doctor if you were like, you know, dying basically. So what do you say to to patients like me, and I, I know that we've talked before about how I'm not necessarily a good patient, but what would you say to someone you know, hypothetical asking for a friend? <laughs> yeah, so this is um, this is know, not this medical, medical advice. I, this is why I think that in the
1: United States, you know this the Center for Disease Control and Prevention really is like too big of of an organization. It has to be the Center for Disease Control. And the Center for Disease Prevention, you know, because disease prevention is not given the same, I mean, we look at the CDC, but you don't, you don't kind of go CDC, AP, you know, you're not like, oh, and the prevention side is kind of an afterthought. Um, But we need prevention, we need care that leads us so that we're not just going to the emergency department in Distress when the fire is blazing and you know, where we could have really put that out when it was a kindling you know a little small spark um, of whatever was going on. And plus there's so much delay that happens if you wait till it's so bad you're in the emergency department. Um, and so I, I think that you know, preventive, preventive care needs a massive overhaul in, in the United States, and it needs to be a target that we aim for. Um, in terms of really broadening people's access to that. And so I don't think it's your fault per se. We can't blame the patient when the system is not in place for you to really do that. So
0: if you could wave a a magic wand, kind of what does a, what does a better system look like? Is there another country that you've seen that's got it right? And and I guess a sub question to that is, is, is this an ongoing conversation? Like sometimes I feel like I'm in my own little echo chamber ranting and, and begging anybody. I can get an ear that we need immigration reform, but like, I don't think it's high on anybody's bucket list, um, in the white house or Senate or Congress to really have immigration reform is, is there a conversation about healthcare? And if, if we did reform healthcare, who, who would we model?
1: That's that's a great question because there are many countries, including you know my my most familiar country, obviously because my mom is Brazilian, um, is Brazil. So Brazil has a universal healthcare system. You know, I feel like there they do develop much more of a relationship with the system You know, because then you understand You know, your part, you have healthcare, you are all, always able to go wherever you need to go to get healthcare. You're able to go to, uh, there's centers, there's points all over town, which are immunization centers where you get your immunizations and you just show up, show them your passport and then you get your immunization. It's very easy. Um, does that translate to the United States in the same way no, no, right now, definitely not. We don't have access to those kinds of things. But do I think that a well thought out plan where access points are more obviously and clearly constructed in a way that is universal or in some way more driven by what we need in non-individual level, which is not just like, you know, so healthcare for me is you know, not different. You don't need any different healthcare, for example, um, than the average person on the street. I mean, anybody's body, everybody's body is equal, right? I mean, we are all equal human beings on this planet. There is no value, more higher value to any one of our lives, right? That's the main thing. And so, healthcare to me is an ultimate um, baseline human right. Um, and so, that's what makes it so hard to say, Hey, does this country's philosophy on healthcare really translate to the United States? Because in the United States, we don't really have a system in place where we treat all lives equally.
0: I'm like, really, this is sinking in and I'm comprehending this because it's so true. If my, like, I, I, I'm only thinking about my dad. He, he's also, you know, hardcore Arkansas, Kansas, uh, you know, rub some dirt on it kind of guy. And, not that I am, I say also, but I'm thinking about Kami's dad and he's, he's cut from the same, the off. same. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that I'm not, I'm like, I don't want to rub dirt on it. I want someone to give me some pills. So I don't have to feel that get an antibiotic goes. ointment up in yes, this, exactly. up in this head. And, yeah. and can someone just cleanse my chakras? So I don't even have to experience that. But, um, my dad is like, he's talked about, cause they don't, I know my dad doesn't have healthcare and, um, he owns his own business and has no, no, um, Maybe he pays a premium or something. I, I don't really know. But when he has talked about getting sick, he's like, if I get sick, I just want to know that I make enough money where I can go to the Mayo Clinic. And you think about that and that's aspirational. It's almost like part of the American dream has gone from being, I want to make enough money to where I can own a home to, I want to make enough money where if I get sick, I can pay to have someone good take care of me. And that's kind of messed up.
1: Yeah, I, I 100% agree
0: with that. I, not I think that my not that my dad's logic is messed up, but the system that he, the infrastructure, right? It's it's functioning not, in is you know, and that. and the thing we've bought into that
1: system in the United States, you know, that that's how it should be. But there needs to be better a better system in place. Now, details of that, I'm not 100% sure. You know, I what specific change would otherwise need to be made? Um, but that's something that I'm definitely passionate about, I feel like people need to have their healthcare information. They need to be empowered to know their and equalized uh, with regards to access to their healthcare information, access to medical care, period. And we need to give people trust in their primary care doctors because whether that's a team or whoever that is or their point, their central, their central, you know, access point of care. It, that needs to be really where they build trust in their healthcare system around them. So then they, they can be their best selves, you know, cause if your health is not good, then you, how are you going to do all the things that we, that the United States demands of you work, create an income, create a better environment, not commit crime, um, spread love, you know, volunteer at your kid's school. Uh, how are you going to do all that? If you're so busy navigating a complicated healthcare system? where you kind of maintenance.
0: The other component to this is it's not just income. It's not only, it, it's like, a, it's a caste system. When we really think about what healthcare is, it, it it plays out in a caste system. And my clients and from an immigration perspective really are the lowest caste. And I can't help but notice that they also, most of my clients are also Hispanic. So they have their, they're marked as a, a minority. And it is, very frustrating for them to come in and they have U S citizen children who have major medical needs and mom and dad, or maybe it's just mom, or maybe it's just dad don't have status in the country. And so they're afraid to go reach out to medical professionals because they're, they feel like everything within the the government is related and connected and that somehow they're either going to be refused or they're going to be penalized later on, which to some, to some extent sometimes might be true. And worse is like, what happens if I can't pay for this debt and they're going to take the the small home or like, you know, I grew up in a trailer, they grew, they're living in a trailer and this is their one possession that they've worked their whole life for. And hospitals will come repo that if they can't pay their medical bills. And it is, I have not thought about how, and here's why I haven't thought about this, this is kind of an aha moment. Thank you for this is because I've always had, ever since I got married to Sean, I've had access to medical care, I have not needed it because it's always been available to me. And so it's one of those moments of privilege. And this is a privilege that Sean pays the price for. I don't have to necessarily pay the price for, but it's such a privilege that I have access to medical care. I don't necessarily like it or use it, but man, isn't it so nice to be like, you know, you know, you walk in and and you open the fridge and you look in the fridge and you're like, "Mm, I don't think any of this food looks good to me. Instead of being like, God, I have so much access to food, you know, (laughs) you don't really stop and appreciate it. But that's, this is a moment for people, whether you're a person who wants to see, you know, when it wants to see an overhaul of our healthcare system if you're not someone who's advocating for that, that probably means you're coming from a place of privilege and that's cool. Good for you. And, and good for us. Like, I'm so grateful that, um, I have this opportunity to learn about this and have a moment of gratitude for that privilege.
1: Yeah. I I think that you're spot on, um, that it is right now. It is a cast system, unfortunately, and we're very fortunate in the military to have universal healthcare. We have TRICARE, basically, we can get access anywhere, right? I mean, we can, that's, it's how they, it's how the military ensures that we're fit to fight, that we're ready to go, that if we have healthcare, well, then, then we're good, then we can, we can, then, you know, we're the, the, the medical community within the military supports the human weapon system, you know, instead of the, weapons, weapon system, right. Of the war machine, you know, we support military readiness and health. And so if the members are not healthy, we, we're not, we're not a healthy force. We can't, we can't continue to fight the good fight, whatever that may be. Um, And so it's just such an important thing that, you know, obviously in the military, we figured it out, but just everywhere else have, we have not figured that out. Mental health, I think in general is just very undervalued um in terms of what it really the reality is we all think of ourselves as individual beings as our brains i mean our brains are who we are and if that is unwell we we take it upon ourselves to say there's something un there's something wrong with us or something that you know that that we we should be ashamed of but the truth is that our interactions with the world and our way of being in the world, whatever that may be, is not wrong. It's just at times we need to get help and to be able to make good choices, to be able to face the challenges that we face in our lives. And that ability to ask for help is something that we need to grow within ourselves, and to be able to be vulnerable about that and open about that, I think coming from people, even even people in the situation where they're you know so in such a healthy position in life, when you're dealing with a mental health issue to make it open and a conversation and to be be able to find those mechanisms that help you get through it, that is what's going to open up for others around you to be more transparent about their mental health care and mental health struggles and, and those things. And it's, and it shouldn't be a burden to the people around you. I mean, that's, that's the point is you should be able to share those informations with, with the people around you, with your healthcare providers, with your healthcare, anybody involved in your healthcare and not feel ashamed to do that or stigmatized for that.
2: Yeah. I like that a lot. It's, it seems like it's the, you know, mental health care is the invisible illness because you can't, you can see a broken arm. You can't see something going on in somebody's soul. And I had this conversation with my daughters is, uh, you know, we've recently been taking them, um, to therapy just to kind of help the girls kind of cope through what they're going through right now. One of them's in grade school, one's in middle school, and these are really, you know, impactful years for them. And I, I said those things exactly to them as, you know, going to a uh, a brain doctor is what I called it. I said uh, in, uh, in the terms of, you know, when your body is sick, you go to the doctor and when you need help kind of navigating emotions and feelings and stuff, you go see a psychologist or a psychiatrist and, and you get some therapy. And so I'm really glad to hear the, you know, awareness around help in this, capacity is something that is being talked about a lot more and I wanted to talk to, I wanted to ask you a little bit Joni about you know your own wellness practice Hillary had mentioned earlier you know cleansing your chakra and stuff
1: yeah i I think you know just with with everything you do have to come back to yourself and your center and take care of your yourself and your needs. And it, and it sounds selfish to a certain degree. It's like, oh, you take care of yourself before you take care of anybody else. But the reality is that you need to take care of yourself, your body, your health, your mind part of the practice was to create an altar so that you're reminded or you can integrate it into your daily practice of kind of coming back to what is important not not necessarily like an altar to any deity or any other thing like that it's more like an altar to yourself and to your self-care so that you know to come back and and open that door between you and whatever cosmic connection you have you know if it's to your faith or whatever that's that can be an alter to that too but um fundamentally it's just that space where you, where you create space for yourself so um I think that that's something that I'm learning I mean obviously it's a practice it's not a, a something that you just are eminence into you know more than anybody else when you started um but that's part it's part of a growing thing it's not journey it's not right like
2: your journey
1: constantly moving towards something better. I
0: like that. When you read, I love listening to books, podcasts. What are some of the things that you're reading right now? Some of the things that you're listening to that people who want to know more about how to have access to medical care or what the medical field is looking like, or if if they hear conversations from politicians on the news and they want to figure out what are they talking about? Kind of how I was talking today, where it's like, I don't even know how to be empowered because I don't even know, like you look in a toolbox and you don't know that this thing, it's actually a screwdriver and this is how you use it. So what are things that you're listening to that you think our audience would benefit from or things that you're reading?
1: well i tend to be a little bit esoteric with my podcasts. (laughs) i mean more like within a realm of my areas of specialty so that i can develop my personal knowledge is kind of what i've been more targeted in on so for example twiv i listen to that's the virology podcast i listen to the immunology uh immunology it's called immune podcast and that basically tells there's a lot of great information, both in those podcasts for the layperson as well, just about COVID, if you're interested uh, in hearing about how the immune system works and actually kind of hearing some higher level science about the immune system and hearing about from some doctors who um, really know what the latest guidelines are about vaccination and um when you should get your booster um and it, they have every week they have this week in virology and then they usually have a um guest speaker Dr. Griffin who um is the one who does all of the you know more specific clinical things so it's, call, it's almost like if you had any covid questions that's the place to go um the other podcast that i listen to regularly is how i built this <laughs> I love that and podcast. and yes. this American Life, <laughs> yes. Um, but you know, so those are the my most my my favorite ones. But when it comes to healthcare, I mean, the the reality is that there just isn't really a good resource that I think would be interesting enough right now to listen to. I mean, who wants to really listen to like, hey, the healthcare system is like this or like that, and, it, and it's boring, right? I mean, I, I think I, I feel like. That's where the whole is. It's, it's healthcare is boring enough. I mean, there's some interesting stuff, but like it's the system itself is boring. And I don't think that there would be a great platform probably to, to talk about it. Um, maybe
0: somebody can make it exciting.
1: And then I would watch, I would listen to that podcast. Some (laughs) eyeliner
0: and (laughs) clip in some of your your hair extensions. I, I think it'd be very interesting. Hmm. I agree. Yeah.
1: Well, there is that's there's a big hole in that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! I love how to it. make healthcare. Preven- well, I mean, prevent preventive care. Like you know, there. I mean, Mayo puts out some stuff that's very you know inter- There's the occasional spot. You know, in terms of consistency of connection with one particular resource, it's just not that many. But I do like Sonia Singh's uh, podcast on highly sensitive people um, as well. And that's, that was a good one.
0: I love it. Any parting words for people who are listening and feeling like they don't have power over their medical care. They feel like they don't have, it's awful when you feel like you don't have control over the thing that is going to give you life. What do you say to that person? I say,
1: try to forge relationships with A healthcare team. If it's not one doctor, if you're disappointed in your doctor, make a relationship with a place that you can go to ask your questions. No matter what that may be, make it a. If there's county clinics, if you don't have insurance, there's in your local area there are lists through the county of where to get primary care access. um, No matter where you live, and so it's very important to know that there are. Clinics available, and make the phone call to to make an appointment. Even if you're well, to make an appointment, so that when you're sick, you know where to go. And that's something you have to remind yourself to do. And I'm guilty of myself. You know, hey, when you're well, sometimes you need to go in and check in. Like for example, I was well. I went to my well woman exam. I got my mammogram. Um, I would not have done that if I hadn't gone. Um, and those kinds of things will prevent disease down the road and 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 establish a trust relationship where you can ask questions with your
0: whoever it is who's providing the care at the time. Yeah, when you are in like I have I was talking about this yesterday when I found out that I had that teratoma tumor how when the doctor came in and told me in the emergency room that you have a large tumor and she like held up her hand and made like a big circle where her index like where her middle finger and thumb touch like that kind of circle and she's describing it to me, I left my body. And so you don't, I think all of us can understand and get on the same page that you're not going to make good decisions when you are like having an out of body experience, because you're in shell shock that this is happening to me, especially with some stranger who, why are all the doctors so young these days? <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> because it's, it's not that we're getting older. Um, but you, you definitely don't want to feel that way. Take it from me. Um, I really wish that it it could have unfolded in a different way. It is what it is, but looking back, I, I, I don't want to revisit that. So you've given us a lot to think about and a lot of great new ways to look at something that is all around us every day. And just because we don't touch it every day, doesn't mean that it's not all around us. And I have a heightened level of gratitude for the fact that I have access to medical care and that everyone on our team has access to medical care because of of my experience in the hospital. I came back to the firm and said, we need to get a healthcare policy because if, if that had been where I had to pay out of pocket, I really, I think it would have, it would have wrecked my life because of the cost of it. So, um, Dr. Joan, thank you so much. I just love you and appreciate you and hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.
1: Thanks, Hillary. Thanks for all of this. It's just wonderful that you're doing this for
0: everybody. For our peeps. Okay. Yeah. Love you, babe. Yes. Yeah. Bye. Have a good one. Bye. I don't know about you, but that was such a refreshing, wonderful, engaging conversation from the wonderful Dr. Joan Chapman. I think that my takeaway is that I need to stop being scared of, of actually knowing what's going on with my own health. I think that I don't, actually I know that I don't have a primary care physician because I'm scared that they're going to tell me something I don't want to hear. And that really is living in a victim state with my own care of my of myself and If I go and do tests that they tell me that I need to do because I'm a woman of a certain age, then I should go and do that with confidence that I know I'm going to be able to be cared for, which is a very different place than I'm going to hope for the best. And if we cross that bridge, we'll get to it with health. I don't know what your takeaway was. I hope that you'll share that with us. Give us a review on the podcast. We're so excited to have you. And please share this with a friend who might want to think differently about healthcare in the United States. Thanks, friend. And we'll see you next time.